Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. What's up, folks? Great episode here with Dr. Gerald Pollock, who wrote the book, The Fourth Phase of Water. Fascinating read. If you enjoy it, please pick up a copy of the book. This was such a great conversation. Jerry and I met at a conference, and I found what he had to say so interesting that I just thought we should bring him onto the show. So if you enjoy this episode, please get to our donate page. Pay it forward, thehumanxp.com slash donate. We survive on your support. Also find us on Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook, all at The Human XP. Thank you guys so much for listening. This is a really great episode. The Human Experience is discovering the fourth phase of water as we welcome my guest, Dr. Gerald Pollock, to the show. Jerry, my good sir, welcome to HXP. Oh, thank you so much. It's a it's a real pleasure to be with you, Xavier, and um, look forward to your questions. So, Jerry, when we met, you know, at the conference that we were both at and we had lunch, the conversation was so fundamental. I felt like it was necessary to bring you on to this format and discuss your findings. Oh, I thought it was the hamburger that was more interesting. <laughs> the hamburger was also pretty good. <laughs> If you could just give us an introduction to your work for the people that don't know about it, because I, I feel like a lot of this work hasn't been really heard of before. So just give our audience a bit of an introduction of who you are and, and the work that you're conducting. Yeah, please. sure. Okay. So I am a professor at the University of Washington in Seattle, which often gets confused with um, Washington University, which is in St. Louis, or George Washington University, which is in D.C., and um, in, in the state of Washington, we have at least four universities with the name Washington. <laughs> we have Eastern Washington, uh, Western Washington, Washington State University, etc. Anyway, we're in Seattle, and uh, Seattle is a terrific place if you're interested in water because we get a lot of rain <laughs> during during the year, But but in fact, that's not really what inspired this work. What, what inspired this work is originally is, is um, a meeting uh, um, uh, with a fellow named Gilbert Ling, L-I-N-G. And, and Gilbert, um, Gilbert was interested in, in the biology of the cell. And he came up with this radical idea uh, that in, inside the cell, the water molecules, you know, the cell is just full of, of, of water, uh, the seventy percent is a is a figure that's typically uh, given, but you know if you actually count the the mole- do a do a count of all the molecules one by one that you encounter as you go through the cell, ninety nine out of a hundred or more are actually water molecules because they're so small that in order to make up that two thirds by volume, you need a lot of those little water molecules to 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 do that, and so. So the, the idea um, 
uh, which is not only Gilbert Ling's idea, but uh, other people who came before him, that the water inside the cell was was different somehow from the water inside a glass of water, and that it was organized like a crystal or a liquid crystal in, in, in some way, and that this kind of a crystalline form of of water was really important for for life or for uh, what what the cell does initially i i had been in a different field in the field of muscle contraction and and here was gilbert ling saying that water is really important and all these muscle scientists um, trying to figure out how muscles work completely ignoring the fact that the cell is filled with water you know mm-hmm. they they talk about the proteins that are involved in the contraction of muscles. That's what we're trying to figure out how it, how it works. And, and, um, and the idea is that these, these proteins do whatever they do to create contraction in a vacuum, basically. Well, it's obviously not true. There are a lot of water molecules, and you'd think that uh, the 99% count meant that the water had some significance. And so, so I was swayed by by the presentation of not only Gilbert Ling, um, but also uh, uh, Albert St. Georgie, who uh, won the Nobel Prize for discovering vitamin C and mm-hmm. studying muscles, actually, for quite a few years. And I, I just got discovered recently that in one of his m- many books that um, he says that the trigger for muscle contraction has to do with a destructuring of the water. In other words, the water is organized, structured, pretty much the way Gilbert Ling uh, thought, and and um, and that the initiation of the contraction was triggered by that water going from the structured, organized form to ordinary water, and and um, I I just found out that just a few years ago, but but anyway, meeting Gilbert Ling and listening to him talk at a conference in in Hungary. Um, and and also coming into contact with uh, with people who had evidence to support his point of view, it, it was like a trigger that said to me, you know, not only is water important probably for muscle contraction, my field, but but also important for all aspects of life, and. So I gave uh, some of Gilbert Ling's books to some of my students to look at, postdocs, and every one of them uh, said, this guy is really on to something important. I thought the same myself, and so I, I began thinking about the contents of his book, and I came to realize that the book was pretty esoteric. Uh, Gilbert, he's now 97 years old or 96, I, for, I forget, mm-hmm. still, uh, you know, Alive and kicking, and uh, kicking strongly, <laughs> um, and and um, I, I realized that it was important to get Gilbert Ling's message out to the world, and and so Gilbert Ling was uh, is is alive and kicking, and I thought, however, his his book or actually books now I think he has six or seven are not easy for even for physical chemists uh, to to understand and. And my mission at, at the time, around the year 2000, was was to write a book that explained what Gilbert was thinking, because his work was seminal, and really, if he was right, it was critical for understanding of of all of biology. And so I undertook the task of 
writing a book, and the goal of the book was to make Gilbert's ideas um, understandable to to the general public. And the book did come out. It was called Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life. And and it was considered controversial. Uh, Many people are still reading it, uh, even after 15 years. But the main point in the book was, um, was... goes beyond uh, merely uh, delineating, uh, expanding on the ideas of Gilbert Ling. It, it, it went further, and it, it came to the conclusion that, the same as what Albert St. Georgie said many years ago, and I forgot to mention, he, he was a Nobel laureate, and um, the, the considered to be the, the father of modern biochemistry, and that is that the transition from the ordered water to the disordered uh, or ordinary water was actually an important trigger for for turning on the cell to do whatever it was its job was to do. So in a muscle cell, for example, um, uh, that transition from the ordered state to the disordered state would be responsible for triggering the contraction. And for a nerve cell, it would be responsible for triggering the, the signal transmission or action potential and and for a secretory cell, it would be responsible for basically uh, for ejecting whatever is being secreted from the cell. So the idea is that this is not only the ordering of water inside the cell is is not only important, but it's absolutely critical for some of the or many of the most basic mechanisms of life, uh, movement, uh, signal transmission, uh, etc. So so that's. That's background. Naturally, when the book came out, um, we were terribly interested in following through and learning more about about this kind of ordered water, so-called structured water. Mm-hmm. Uh, people call it by different names. And so we came upon a, a, a preparation that we could use, an experimental preparation that we could use to study the phenomenon. And I was I was really excited. To find it, it turned out it was. It came from a conversation with a Japanese colleague, and I don't need to go into great detail. But it, the, the the setup is really simple, and that is, you take a, a chamber, a small chamber, and in the chamber you put either a gel or some kind of material that is hydrophilic, that is water-loving. It's the kind of material where if you were to drop a droplet of water on it, the water would spread out. That's hydrophilic substances, mm-hmm. as opposed to hydrophobic, where, like, for example, Teflon, if you, if you drop some water on it, beads up, stays away from the surface, so-called hydrophobic or fearing, water-fearing. You see? Right. So, so as long as the surface was hydrophilic, we found that in most cases, not every single one, but in, in most cases, that um, that the water next to that material would change dramatically, and we could see the features of uh, of, of that water by putting little particles in in the solution. So in the chamber, in the chamber, we, we had uh, uh, this material, and we pour in water, and inside the water are suspended some particles. And we used microspheres, that is, little spheres, one micrometer or so in diameter. And what we saw initially was that these spheres didn't want to get anywhere near the surface of that material. They 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 actually got pushed out. Um, you know, initially they're right up against the material, and if you watch it over three or four or five minutes, 
these little particles get pushed away and they stay away. And, and the distance we're talking about is, is um, maybe typically a quarter of a millimeter or so, almost big enough to see with your naked eye, although we used a microscope. Mm -hmm. so, so we began seeing this again and again, and um, we thought this was interesting and unique. turned out it was not unique because in 1970, somebody had published pretty much the same uh, observation in the Journal of Physiology. Uh, and, and, but anyway, it, it, we couldn't understand why, why this would happen. Of course, we had an idea in the back of our mind, and that is if the water sitting next to those surfaces, if that water were converted from ordinary water, which was what you put in, to a kind of water that's organized or structured, um, this structured water being much like a crystal, sort of like ice or snow or something, you know, as, as ice grows, it pushes everything out um, because the ice crystal is pure. Anything that was in the water gets ejected from that water. And the same thing seemed to be occurring um, next to the surface. It looked like it could be a sign that the water was becoming this kind of structured or uh, ordered water that Gilbert Ling and Albert St. Georgie were talking about. So what, what we found is it it was really true. We we found no fewer than eight, or actually now close to ten, different properties that we measured of this water that was near the surface compared to the ordinary water. Everyone differed, and some of them differed markedly, physical and chemical properties. And um, and and so we we realized that um, that what's going on is that. The ordinary water, we call it bulk water, that meets um, these surfaces gets transformed into an entirely different kind of water that we've referred to as a different phase or the fourth phase of water. And this idea had been predicted 100 years ago by a um, um, famous uh, physical chemist who said, you know, we can't really understand all the properties of water um, uh, there are so many anomalies that we need actually a new phase or a different phase of water mm -hmm. to help us account for all of these anomalies. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I, I think this does. And, and so the book that I wrote, this was just uh, three years ago, it's called The Fourth Phase of Water Beyond Solid, Liquid, and Vapor. Um, not only does the, the book explain the experimental evidence for this fourth phase, but it, it goes on to explain many of these um, unexplained phenomena in a very simple way. And, and the, the book has actually caught on. A, a lot of people uh, have been interested in So you're, you're demonstrating these ideas of this, this other phase and, and the discovery and, and your interest in it, and which is remarkable for me because yes our, our planet is is two-thirds water we are mostly made up of water so what does this say towards our conventional understanding of how water works and why have these ideas been sort of pushed aside for so long why aren't we discussing this more well i think um the reason we're not discussing this uh more is um it reveals less about water and more about the scientific endeavor. Um, you know, we're all, as scientists, we're scientists, but first we're humans, and we're uh, subject to the same limitations and frailties as everybody. And, and one of those is that um, we like to feel safe and secure. So 
So imagine, imagine that you're um, you're a scientist, and um, and you you're one of the group of people who who have been studying flat Earth. And it was a few hundred years ago, and um, and and you feel content and secure because you've studied almost more than anybody else the the flatness and the nature of the flatness and the tiny undulations, and it's pretty obvious. That like everybody else out there, um, you can look out the window and it looks pretty flat. And, and so, understandably, the Earth is flat. And and somebody comes along and says, "Well, wait a second. Um, I have some evidence that seems to conflict with that. I've seen some satellite photos, and um, you know, um, unless they're photoshopped, they they really look as though the Earth is round or spherical. It's not flat. And by the way, you know, I took off last month from Seattle, and I stopped in Hawaii, went on to Shanghai." And um, and then stopped in the Middle East and went on to to London and flew back to Seattle from there. Uh, and if the Earth is flat, how is that possible? And so, what I would like to do is, um, I'd like to study this uh, potential for uh, a round Earth instead of flat Earth. And um, <laughs> so, please, National Science Foundation or whomever, give me some money because. You know, so, so you know the result of that. The National Science Foundation. There is a person who takes that grant proposal and looks and says, "Oh, this is this is pretty revolutionary. If this guy is right, um, it's going to be a big deal. I'd I better get better recruit some reviewers who really understand all there is to understand about the the shape of the Earth. And so, who are those going to be? Well, obviously, these are the flat Earth people because they're they're the people who who know what there is to know about the shape of the Earth. So. Your proposal to get money, um, you can imagine what was going to happen to it. And there are, of course, many, many, many examples. It goes to the review committee. They look it over. They read what you have to say. And uh, and they inevitably come up with some reason why this is not a proposal that's worth funding. And one, one component of, of that reasoning is they feel threatened. Because if you're right about your round-earth idea – then their position in scientific uh, society is jeopardized. They they have been and they still are the world authority on the shape of the earth. And here's this young or mm. old upstart who comes along and said, everything you ever thought about is wrong. Right. Um, so, so, so the response is, is inevitable. Now, I don't say that all of this is exactly what's, what's happening with water, but we all, we all grew up understanding that there were three phases of water and every piece of uh, no, solid liquid and vapor and every every piece of uh, uh, scientific literature makes that assumption and starts with that as a basis and, and develops sometimes very complicated theories to explain uh, observations someone comes around and says, well wait a second i think there are four phases not three phases and here's the evidence so so what do you do if you're a part of that scientific community um well what you do is is, is is an act of self-preservation. You you basically ignore it and wait. If if your colleagues somehow begin to take it seriously, then you kind of feel obliged to take it seriously. But otherwise, it's better to just go on what you're doing, pretend it doesn't exist, and move on from there. I want to um you know I want to go back to the experiment and simplify as much as possible what we are looking at when we're conducting this experiment. So we're just 
we're taking a container that is dripping down into two other containers that are tr that are charged by a voltage, right? And no, the, uh, the water no, is just dropping no. down, and we're observing the behavior of that water. There, there's no no dropping down. Um, so it's a it's a chamber, a little container, mm -hmm. and in that container, we will put either a gel or a, a, some kind of polymer that has a hydrophilic surface. In that little so, and then you dump and fill the rest of the chamber with water that contains particles or microspheres or even a dye. It doesn't really matter which one. And and we look to see what happens using a microscope. What happens next to the surface of that material? At first, you see nothing interesting. But if you watch over a period of say, usually about five minutes, you can see a zone that starts at the surface and builds out to beyond the surface that contains no microspheres. They're excluded from this region. And that's why we call it exclusion zone. And then it stabilizes. And this zone that has no microspheres or no dye, if we had put dye in instead, this is the zone that we're talking about. This is the zone that we've determined through many studies um, is different from ordinary water. It, and we call it exclusion zone, as I mentioned, because it excludes, but it's got more interesting properties and the properties are that of a liquid crystal, unlike ordinary bulk water. Does mm. that help? Um, yeah, yeah, it does. So there's a type of social behavior that's occurring within the water molecule the, the particles of the water. Yeah, yeah, you might say, you know, you go to a party and you've been excluded. <laughs> uh, mm. That's the social behavior. What does this mean? I mean, what does this mean for the larger perspective? Yeah, that's a good question. What, what it means is that pretty much whenever you have a hydrophilic surface and water meets that hydrophilic surface, the water that meets the surface is transformed uh, enormously. But it's not just one molecular layer that meets. Actually, th this change propagates over many, many, many molecular layers because if we're talking about a few hundred micrometers, which is a typical size, we're talking about millions of molecular layers. So it's a, it's a, a gross transformation that is not just one layer, but many, many, many layers. This is the fourth phase. Mm -hmm. Does that help? Uh, um, I, I want you to continue that thinking. So, so I mean, if we could put this in uh, a reachable sense for the masses, how can this be used in science or for medicine? Okay, good, good question. Um, so, um, uh, I'll, I'll talk about medicine uh, in a moment, but for science, or actually, let's say for technology. Um, uh, in fact, we started a company to to do what I'm what I will talk about in a moment. Uh, the first thing is that if you can extract this zone, and it's large enough that it's extractable, and we've found ways to extract it, this is free of particles, molecules, whatever. So. In, in essence, it's contaminant-free. So if you have a system, a, a physical system, and you have a tube that's going into the system, let's call it, and the tube contains contaminated water, um, if, you, if, the, if the output of this system is just the easy water, that easy water should be free of those contaminants because it excludes them. And, and that's what we've done. Um, we've demonstrated a, a geometric setup where where we can actually easily and continuously extract the easy water. And 
so we, we've demonstrated proof of principle and, and the, the task ahead, which we've made great progress, is to scale it up. Because if you take um, one little tube that we might use to, to achieve what I just mentioned, then you kind of get a trickle of an output. The output's great. It's, uh, it's essentially contaminant-free, uh, but there's not much of it. And so if you want to use it for a practical application, you, you need to somehow build up the system to do this in mass. And in the past few months, since, since the company was great, we've achieved that. And, and we hope to implement that for, you know, for the good of humanity because more and more our waters are horribly polluted with, with all kinds of ions and pharmaceuticals, uh, throwaway drugs and such. And these are certainly not beneficial to our health. So something needs to be done about it. You can do it. Um, there's a technique that many people know about. It's called reverse osmosis. And it's pretty effective, uh, you know, not completely effective, but, but it requires huge amounts of energy uh, to do. And so it's practical in Saudi Arabia, where the oil is pretty much unlimited. And they use it, in fact, because they have no natural water sources. So all the drinking water essentially comes from out of, out of actually out of out of salt water from the seas that have been desalinated. And um, but it requires huge energy. In in this system, um, we do it without energy. And so I didn't explain that, but because um, we didn't get to it yet. But you know, in order to in order to achieve this separation or this creation. Of, of, of this zone, you need energy because you can't get something for nothing. And so where does the energy come from? At first, we were completely befuddled. We had no idea. We couldn't figure it out. And then uh, one of the undergraduate students, we have a, a lot of undergrads working in the lab, and, and the undergraduate student took a lamp and he shined the lamp on the chamber. And he noticed, and we noticed, that where he was shining the lamp uh, the exclusion zone grew, and so it grew enormously. And if you pulled away the lamp, it went back to the original size. So, you know, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that, hey, maybe light is the energy that's driving this. And so we studied in a formal, more formal way, wavelengths of light ranging from the ultra, ultraviolet to, to the visible to the infrared. And, and we had a really clear result that all of these wavelengths uh, tended to build the size of the exclusion zone, but most effective by far was infrared light, particularly at the wavelength of uh, uh, th about 3,000 nanometers. So this is, this is the wavelength that water absorbs the most. This is well known. And what we found out is that it's also the wavelength that uses this uh, absorbed light to, um, to turn it into uh, easy growth. And so that's this is one thing. And then, um, so you, you need the energy to, to do that, especially infrared. And that energy is all around us. It's free. You, you said that these uh, exclusion zone layers can come together to form a colloidal type crystal, right? Right. So yeah. it, this is a, a stable structure that can exist for a duration of time. Yep. What do we need technologically to conduct this? How can this colloidal crystal be important to our conventional understanding of what water is doing and what, what water isn't doing? Um, well, so now we get to the second part of 
of of your question, which which has to do with with our cells and and um, and medicine and such, and um, so uh, be, just before I get to that, let let me say that this zone is not neutral uh, the way water is. Uh, we found through experimentation that usually the zone is negatively charged. And the region of water adjacent to that zone is positively charged. So what, what's happened is that the water molecules have split into negative and positive, and the negative parts build up together to form this very large zone. And the positive parts, the protons, are, are excluded. They're outside. They're sitting beyond the exclusion zone. And um, mm. so I, I just want to answer to, uh, a fuller answer to your previous question before we, mm. we get to that, and that is, You've got charge separation. It's like a battery. So if you, and the battery is run mostly on infrared light, that's what's driving. It's recharging this battery. So if you put one electrode in the negative part and another electrode in the positive part, uh, then you can get energy out of this, electrical energy. And the input that's driving all this is infrared basically light from the outside. So so this is like a photocell made of water that converts light energy into electrical energy. And so in terms of technology, this is another, you know, potentially cool application because if you can build this up to a useful scale, then then you you don't have to deplete the earth of of its valuable uh, minerals uh, because this is just water it's a renewable resource and it runs on light see so so the company is also uh, working on developing this and you know in, in terms of of energy we're running low on energy and it's a very simple system to to create energy so so i wanted to to bring that up but but also the fact that this zone is charged is 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 important. So so let me answer now your question about you know wh- why why is this important and and how does it change the way we we look at uh, at nature and so in terms of medicine in terms of your cells so so your cells are filled with with water uh, you know seventy percent or so by, by volume and the question is well what kind of water so most um, med- medical people and scientists have been thinking that what's in the si- inside the cell is ordin- ordinary water, H2O. But um, the evidence, uh, in fact, which is presented both in my previous book in 2001, The Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life, and also in the newer book about EZ water, um, uh, the cell is actually filled with EZ water. And why is it EZ water? Well, um, see, inside the cell... Um, there's not much space for water. The large molecules are sitting very close to each other. In, in fact, the, the average surface-to-surface distance between these macromolecules, mostly proteins, is, is equal to about five water or seven water molecule diameters. It's very, very, very close. And that means that essentially every water molecule is right near one of those hydrophilic surfaces. And so we learned over the past decade that when you have water next to a hydrophilic surface, it tends to be easy water, this liquid crystalline or structured water, which is kind of what Gilbert Ling and Albert St. Georgi were saying, but now we have more evidence for it. So your cell and my cells, I think, uh, are, are filled with easy water and not with H2O. So if you, were, if you want to understand um, 
what the cells are doing and what might uh, turn them into pathological cells, you really need to understand about that water because the water is part and parcel of, of what's inside the cell. And the evidence points to the fact that since um, EZ water is interfacial water, and most of the water inside the cell is interfacial water, that inside your cells, in my cells, is not H2O, but mostly this uh, fourth phase, which is actually H3O2. Hmm. Your cells are filled with H3O2, not with H2O. And it, it could be one of the reasons, you know, since this water is negatively charged, uh, it could be the reasons why cells are negatively charged. There, there are uh, standard uh, reasons and understandings for the negative charge of the cell. And I mean, I can go into the reasons, but I, I, I don't want to digress, but I think that's not true. I think that the negative charge of the cell is actually comes mostly from the water that's inside the cell. And that has a lot of implications um, um, because, you know, once you know that the water is easy water, then, then we have a, a list of, of properties of this water. We know what affects it. We know what depletes it. We know what increases it and such. So we have a, a different set of operational tools for the cell. Um, so, um, you know, for example, if, if the cell is dehydrated, if you don't have enough EZ water, then your cells are not working properly because all the proteins in, in the cell, their job is to fold, to go from one configuration, let's say unfolded to folded. And that represents the work of the cell, of the particular cell. Um, but these proteins all have easy water normally surrounding them. The wa easy water and the protein are actually one and the same. They stick to one another. They form one inseparable unit. But if your cell is missing some of that easy water, it's devoid of it, then what you want to do therapeutically is, is, is whatever is responsible for rebuilding that water. So one of the things that your doctor will tell you when you're sick is drink a lot of water. And it makes sense because, because water is the raw material for building easy water. Now, we also know that in order to build this kind of water, infrared light is really important. So maybe you've had the experience, uh, you know, you sit in a sauna and the sauna is hot. And what that means is that it's just full of infrared energy. You absorb that infrared energy. And what does it do? Well, it builds easy water throughout your body. Your body needs the easy water to, to repair what what's wrong with your uh, with your body or with your cells and so that perhaps is the, is the reason why when you come out of the sauna you generally feel pretty good your your brain feels good you feel relaxed and happy your muscles are free of the aches and pains to some extent at least that that you had when you walked into the sauna and infrared is is critical for that so we are, we are walking crystals basically we are walking liquid crystals, exactly. And a nice book by Mei Wan Ho demonstrates, the late Mei Wan Ho, it's called The Rainbow and the Worm, and it demonstrates um, that little creatures um, are like liquid crystals. And she has some beautiful pictures uh, demonstrating that. It, but yeah, we're, we're walking crystals. That's a really good way to put it, indeed. Hmm. Very interesting. And because this exclusion zone and the bulk water zone, there's a charge between this area, right? Well, the charge, 
yeah, potential difference uh, between the easy and the region of water next to the easy, right? So technologically, I mean, we could use this as a battery or an energy source. Yeah, that's what I was getting to. Um, you know, this is, of course, one of the earlier concepts that came out of this is to see if we can do that. And we have published some experimental evidence that shows that it really works, that you you can put one electrode in the negative part, another in the positive part, and, and you can extract electrical energy, just like a battery. Indeed, exactly. It's a battery. So we're batteries inside. We've got negative and positive charges, and these negative and positive charges separated, these, this battery is at least in part what runs our body. Huh. Very intriguing. So it's not only just drinking water, but also going out into the sun and letting light hit your crystal body. Totally. That's why you feel good when, especially here in Seattle, where there are gray skies most of the time and, and at this time of year. And when the sun pops out, everybody feels good. So we think it must be some kind of psychological issue, but I, it may be. But it's certainly also in part a physical uh, kind of thing that our cells crave the sun because we need the energy to to build our easy water, which is critical for function of our body. Our body is filled with it. I mean, you, you gave a TED Talk a few years ago, and you made the case that as humans, 99% of our molecules are water. Where does this lead to the understanding of human biology and and some of the misunderstandings that we've been kind of led in the wrong direction in your you're trying to redirect it into this better understanding of what water is actually doing. Correct. That, that, that's a really good question. Well put. And um, so, uh, if, if you if you look at um, modern textbooks on either biochemistry or cell biology, and you look in the index and you look under the word water, it's hard to find. The word water is it's not absent, but it's virtually absent from the book and and the reason for that is is that most scientists have come to the opinion or conclusion or hypothesis whatever you you want to say that that water is not centrally involved in anything it's merely a bathing medium for the more important molecules of life so um as a bathing medium, you know, it's just not too important. Uh, it's just a medium in which all other interesting reactions take place. So that has led to uh, uh, an understanding of biochemistry and cell biology that I believe is fundamentally erroneous. Because if if the water is more central to function, as the evidence seems to uh, to indicate, uh, then you've got to start all over and, and think of water as uh, not as an, uh, an innocent bystander, but as an absolutely central player in the game of life. And, and the evidence that I've collected, either both in our own lab and, uh, and outside our laboratory, has shown that the water is absolutely central. So you don't have enough of it. You can't function, and you really need to maintain a critical amount. It's also, it's also a site for information storage, and I know this, uh, this may may sound uh, um, rather radical, uh, but you know this kind of crystalline water can behave very much like a like a computer memory. So, so what's a computer memory? You know, you have a memory stick, and you put it into your laptop, and it's just a series of atoms uh, of silicon or with uh, silicon dioxide uh, that are arrayed very regularly 
um, into a three-dimensional array. And each one of these atoms uh, can be accessed, and it could be either a zero or one. It could be one state or another state. The structure of easy water is much the same. Um, it consists of a regular crystalline array of hydrogens and oxygens, just like the computer um, array, except for a couple of interesting differences. Number one, the water, in, in the case of easy water, the atoms are very tightly packed, high density. And the second is that the oxygens, you know, oxygen has not two states, but actually five possible oxidation states. Uh, minus two is the usual one we think of, but also minus one, zero, plus one, and plus two. And so, so in theory, at least, um, this, these oxygens, each one of these oxygens in the ray can take on not two states, but five different states. Now, if that's true, then you have potentially um, uh, a, a memory element, basically, um, that is, is so rich with opportunity, uh, with information density. And, and so the question is, well, is there any experimental evidence to show that this easy water really is capable of storing information by changing the oxygens or, or, or some other aspect of it? And, uh, and the answer, I think, is yes, resoundingly yes, because um, you know, I, I organize each year the annual conference on the physics, chemistry, and biology of water, usually it's in Bulgaria lately, and it will probably be there next year as, as well. And almost always one or two or three groups stand up and present their, um, their evidence about the, the memory or information of water. This was a, a very controversial topic uh, 25 years ago, and a famous immunologist, um, Jacques Benveniste, basically lost his career. His laboratory of 50 people went down to zero um, when when um, he switched his interest. He became intrigued with the, the question of water memory or water information. He had a lot of evidence that suggested uh, that that was the case, and, and um, his evidence was confirmed in independent laboratories and they sent the paper to nature and they basically got crucified because um, the people from nature didn't want to publish it and they felt under pressure um, from various groups to publish it. and they finally did and the condition was that they they send a, a group of peers to that laboratory in Paris to to look over their shoulders and see what they were really doing and then they would report back uh, to to um, to the readers of of nature so they came the, the paper was published and they came and they spent um, uh, a few days in the laboratory and the first couple of days when when the french group performed the experiment the results came out exactly as they had written in the publication. And the third day, one of the, mm -hmm. uh, the visiting group did the experiments and the results turned out differently. And so they huddled in their hotel and they came to the conclusion that, well, the logic says that when the French do it, it worked out, but when we did it, it didn't work out, therefore it must be some kind of trick. And the visitors were an interesting group of people. One, one was the editor of nature himself, John Maddox, um, who uh, felt under pressure because he was being labeled as unfair for his refusal to publish the paper. The second one was um, the amazing Randy, a magician, um, 
who is well known for his ability <laughs> to to uh, figure out the magic tricks of other magicians, but <laughs> they, they never could quite figure out. You know, the the group was accused of sloppy note taking, and the third one was a guy from the uh, from NIH, National Institutes of Health, from the Center for Scientific Integrity, and and this this group is a group that's charged with with looking into allegations of scientific fraud. So, you know, it's like if if I write a paper saying that my white rat my white rabbits grew black patches, uh, and and someone from the next laboratory noticed that I had a paintbrush and I was painting the rabbits uh, black and they would report me. So these people at NIH are are in charge of examining to find out who's right and who's wrong. So so in essence this was a fraud busting uh, team, and and so they anyway they destroyed um, the career of this guy, whose evidence, by the way, his experiments have been repeated many times and and confirmed in different laboratories. So, at this annual conference that we have, the the with the attendees who were there, it's it's become a fact that his results are correct. But in the outside world, this is a big scientific joke. You know, it's like. Having having trouble remembering, uh, drink some of this famous memory water. When we were at lunch, you talked about this experiment where there was um, some DNA placed in a cup or a glass with water in it, and there was another glass with water in it. And can you talk about that experiment? Because I, I found sure. that incredible. Yeah, to to many scientists, it is incredible. Um, so this is done by Luc Montagnier, who um, happens to be a Nobel laureate who won his Nobel Prize uh, for the identification of HIV. So that so he did that work many years ago, and he was a friend of the guy I just mentioned, Jacques Benveniste. And when Jacques died, um, I think about now about ten years ago, or uh, um, Luc began. Um, uh, using essentially his techniques to um, to study different systems, and so the one I told you about is indeed um, two uh, sealed flasks sitting next to each other, and one flask contains DNA in water, but it, it's been diluted many times. So you might say it's a homeopathic dilution of DNA. So it's got a lot of water in it and not much DNA, and sitting next to it is a sealed flask of water. And so the experiment is basically to let the two sit next to each other um, for a day or so. And he usually applies some extra, you might say, generic kind of energy, like 60 hertz or 50 hertz in, in France or or 7.8 hertz of Schumann frequency. He said it doesn't really matter too much as long as some energy is coming that way. And so the hypothesis is that the DNA or the the water that's surrounding the DNA is transmitting electromagnetic information out of that container sitting next to it. And so the idea is that water that's sitting next to it um, is imparted with DNA information, you see. So to test that hypothesis, uh, what he does is he takes that, that water, the vial of water, and he adds it to the materials that are necessary to build new DNA. It's called PCR. Some, some of your listeners may be familiar with it. And out of that, you get new DNA. And, well, the interesting result is, is that the sequence of that new DNA is the same 
as a sequence of the DNA that had been sitting next to the water. So you're saying that there is a transmission between the flask of water with the DNA in it and the flask of water with just water, and the DNA is copying itself into the flask next to it. Well, that's that's what he he's suggesting, and yeah, that's essentially the results of the uh, of the experiment. Um, uh, so, if the experiment is correct, and you know, Luke um, says that there are two, I think one is Italian and another group that have confirmed the results. Then, you know, it looks pretty interesting. Um, one of the limitations is that all of the details of the work have, have not been published in sufficient detail that you or your friends could repeat the experiments. And, and I, I think that's one limiting factor. But if, if it's correct, you know, a lot of people who are listening to these experiments, some are incredulous and others are accepting this as, uh, as essentially as fact. Then the idea of uh, memory of water is, 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 is uh, I mean, essentially it's proved if the experiment is correct. There are other similar experiments. Um, uh, for example, one of the this is published. Um, uh, he put... Uh, same kind of experiment. He put a homeopathic preparation in a sealed vial right next to a sealed vial of water or or of saline solution. Um, and you know, if you just put the two vials next to each other, nothing is supposed to happen. But he found that the water that was sitting next to um, the the homeopathic preparation actually changed, and you can measure the structural features of, of water using infrared spectroscopy. So, so for example, he would, he would measure the properties of water, uh, ordinary water, that would be the baseline. And then next to that water, a new sample of that water, he'd put a particular homeopathic preparation sitting next to each other for, I think it was a day, and then examine by infrared spectroscopy the water once again and compare it to the original. Inevitably, it was different. And um, for a different homeopathic preparation, the change was different. So in other words, for each individual homeopathic preparation put next to the water, he'd get a, a predictable change in, in the spectra. And this was repeatable. The experiments were done double blind. And uh, this was published a, a couple of years ago by a fellow from Vladivostok. His name is Korenbaum. And it appears in the journal Water. Mm, wow. I mean, it, it really demonstrates the, the informational transmission that water has the possibility to contain. Yeah, I mean, by now there are enough experiments uh, to suggest that, 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 again, for the people usually attending this meeting, it's, it's pretty close to a fact. Uh, but for, you know, people out there in the general audience and and the audience of scientists, they're highly skeptical because you don't think of water as having any capacity to, to store information. But you see, this crystalline water is different because it's semi-solid. It's, it has the consistency of a gel or like honey or such. And, mm -hmm. and so the molecules are not dancing around randomly a, a gazillion times per second. They're stable. And you need some kind of stable organization in order to retain information. And if the molecules are dancing around, a myriad molecules dancing around rapidly, there's really not much basis for information. 
but in something stable, there is. And I, I think that's been part of the resistance that people not realizing that there's a, a stable phase of water, they can't imagine that any possibility of water molecules dancing around and retaining information. See, that, mm-hmm. so that's been a stumbling yeah. block. Wow, Jerry, I think I could we could sit here and, and talk about this for the next three hours, but um, I know you have another appointment coming up. So, um, you know, what can people do listening right now? I mean, I know that you have another book that's come tentatively titled What Makes the Earth Turn? Surprising New Ideas About Our Physical World. I mean, where can people find your work? What can people do to support your research? Give us that, please. Okay, uh, well... Those are two very different uh, questions. Um, So to find our work, um, uh, you mentioned uh, TED Talk. There are now two of them because I gave another one about three weeks ago. Um, I think the the first one, if you just Google my name, Gerald H. Pollock, uh, TED, TEDx, you'll find it. You'll probably find both of them. I hope the new one is out, but it's not widely circulated. And that's... The first, the older one, that's three years old or so, four years old, it provides a kind of conceptual basis uh, for the things that I've been talking about. But it's, of course, it's brief and superficial. It doesn't explain anything in depth. To to um, to get the um, uh, in in depth uh, uh, background, um, I think the best place would be my book, the more recent book, and. Um, if you just check it on Amazon, again, just check the fourth phase of water and my name, you'll get to it. And the book has some you know, pretty nice re- re- reviews. Uh, my mother, if she would be alive, would be very proud. <laughs> uh, and it was illustrated by my son, by the way, who's a gifted uh, artist. So, so that's the place. And the book is written not for experts, but you know, for people who have curiosity and, and interest in the world around them, it, it really doesn't take 10 years of science education to absorb it. Uh, I tried to write it for uh, intelligent lay people. And uh, the, the other real surprise is that some of this stuff, um, some of this stuff was included in a the movie. There was a recent snowboard movie uh, that came out, uh, it, and it's made by... Um, a uh, well-known snowboarder, champion snowboarder, Travis Rice. And Travis, who I'd never heard of before, contacted me a year ago, and he said, you know, I'd like to, uh, I'm making a snowboarding film. This is amazing stunts on, on snowboard done in the back country, and sponsored by Red Bull. And the, the guy's previous film was actually, um, uh, there were, in terms of sports action movies, this was the most watched sports action movie ever. <laughs> so, so the new one came out, and and Travis wanted mm. to name it after my book. So it's called the Fourth Phase, and it's amazing to watch. Not because of my minor participation in the movie, but because you'll see snowboarding feats that are uh, you, that look impossible. But these guys do it in all over the world in different back countries, dropped off by helicopter and some mountaintop that nobody's ever seen before, heard of, or been to. And they, you know, they land right at the top and they do all kinds of snowboard feats uh, and they wind up still alive after, <laughs> after doing it. Anyway, I don't, so, uh, so, so the fourth phase of water plays a fairly minor 
part of, in that movie. But they did something on the Discovery Channel uh, that has it's five minutes long and it has a bit more about the fourth phase and it integrates the fourth phase of water with the snow and the ice and snowboarding and such. And if you just look under fourth phase Discovery Channel, it was on it's on the Discovery Channel with my name, you'll you'll find it right away. It's kind of a fun five minutes that you know that describes it. In terms of support, um, I'm really glad that you you brought that up. You know, it's it's really difficult um, to get support for a laboratory when mm-hmm. when the laboratory is involved in challenging the so-called prevailing wisdom. It's not just our laboratory; it's any and every laboratory I've ever heard of, and I've heard of quite a few that challenge the establishment point of view. Was Usually the establishment people who are the ones who review the applications or don't want you to succeed because it's not in their own personal best interests. And, you know, so the reviews are sometimes tainted with that kind of, kind of influence. And, and so we, we actually, what made it possible to do all this work and, and to write the book, um, what made it possible is a generous grant from the National Institutes of Health it's called a transformative grant, and, and we were in the first cohort to get it. And it was really wonderful because it provided a half million dollars per year for five years to basically do what you want. And we had the freedom um, uh, and the ability to hire postdocs and students with diverse backgrounds so we could work cooperatively toward the goal of understanding water. And really, literally, it's what made possible all of the dis- discoveries that I've been uh, talking about. But that expired, and they don't generally renew that. You get it for five years. And so then, you know, the lab has become accustomed to to that level of support, and it's difficult to get. And so um, so we're way below critical mass. And I would love dearly to restore that critical mass because there are so many interesting questions that remain and follow us, particularly regarding health. So, you know, if any of your listeners are either themselves or acquainted with people who would like to do something to return to society, something that will have made major impact, we, we think, we, we hope, just send me an email and I will, or a phone call. I'd be delighted to, uh, to chat with, with, with those people. We, we need the money badly. And I think society really needs to understand what there is to know about water. It's so central for all of life and all of nature. Yeah, I agree so much. Uh, Jerry, thank you so much for your time. I, I found the book highly intriguing and, and our conversations when we met even more intriguing. So thank you so much. We'll make sure that everyone gets to the book and more of your work. With that, guys, it, this is The Human Experience. Thank you guys so much for listening and we will see you guys next week.